0: .com/soundrise.
1: If you want to make a change this year, check out How to Be a Better Human, a podcast from TED. I'm Chris Duffy. I'm a comedian, and each week on How to Be a Better Human, I sit down to have an honest and hopefully funny and revealing conversation with an expert who can help us to see the world in a new way. This season, we're diving into everything from how you can love better to how to create habits that stick to how to have hope in a world and at a time where that feels really challenging. You can find all those topics and so many more on episodes of How to Be a Better Human, wherever you get your podcasts.
2: My first show was so bad. Like, I was so bad. I was super uncomfortable on stage, not particularly capable. And the second show was at the living room. That one was much better because... I realized that the best strategy was just to be myself.
3: This is Design Matters with Debbie Millman. For 15 years, Debbie Millman has been talking with designers and other creative people about what they do, how they got to be who they are, and what they're thinking about and working on. On this episode, a conversation with Lucy Wainwright Roach about her musical family, her career as a singer-songwriter, and her musical tastes.
2: I really like sad music a lot. Most of the songs I love are really sad.
3: Here's Debbie.
0: Despite the fact that Lucy Wainwright Roach comes from music royalty, her father is Grammy Award-winning folk artist Loudon Wainwright III, her mother was one-third of the legendary folk trio The Roaches, and her half-siblings are Rufus and Martha Wainwright, she started her career as an elementary school teacher. Eventually, she began singing back up in her brother's band, And by 2010, she had recorded and released her own CD. When you hear her beguiling voice and listen to her songs, you might conclude she had no choice in the matter. There are a lot of ways to put this, but none. Lucy Wainwright Roach is here in the studio today to talk about her life, her career, her family, and her music, and maybe... She'll sing a song for us. Lucy Wainwright-Roach, welcome to Design Matters. Thanks for having me. Lucy, I understand that you're a rabid Eminem fan and even know every word to cleaning out my closet. Is that true? (laughs) That is
2: true. No one has ever heard me sing it except for my mother.
0: (laughs) Well, would you consider singing it now? I don't
2: think I can. I think that would take some real preparation (laughs) and maybe... I, have, I might have to be overly exhausted
0: to Darn. do it. Uh, Darn. <laughs> yeah, you're not tired today. Um, when did you first discover Eminem and, and what was the allure? I just heard him on the radio.
2: That song, um, Mockingbird, one of the songs about his kid. And uh, many of his songs are so heartbreaking and incredibly fit together. It's just jaw-dropping to me. And he actually reminds me of my dad writing wise a little bit too, which my dad I don't think would be into.
0: I could see that. When he talks about his family yeah, and his case it reminds a certain me of my dad. candidness to yeah. both of their writing that I can I can see. I wouldn't have ordinarily thought that. It would yeah. never have occurred to me, but I think you're right. Lucy, you were born and raised in Greenwich Village, New York City. Your parents split up when you were two. And I've read that you lived with your mom, Suzzy Roach, in a tiny one-bedroom apartment where you had the bedroom and she had the living room. Your mom has said that while it was often financially stressful, you never had the sense you were poor. Have you and your mom always been close?
2: Yes. My mom and I are really uh, enmeshed, you might say. And uh, we talk most every day and text a lot. And we work together too, so we sometimes tour together and we shared a hotel room when I was a kid and we share a hotel room still.
0: I can't even imagine what it must have been like to grow up with Sezzy Roach as your mother. I've been a fan of their music, a rabid fan, I might say, and I could probably sing many, many songs on the spot. Not that I'm going to, but well, that I'm just let you know. I, We could do that together. Uh, could let's sing that. Hammond's song together. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I've been a fan of their music since 1979. Um, what is your favorite song? I would say
2: one of my all-time favorite Roaches songs is One Season. Mm-hmm. I love that song uh, so much. It, for some, it just it holds up every, with every passing year. I relate to it more and more, which I'm not sure is a great Sign about me in general,
0: but the song is just like it's so good. well, their music is timeless. I think every single one of their albums still hold up,
2: yeah, I think so too.
0: How much time
2: do you spend with your dad at this point in your life? We also work together. I open for him sometimes, and then sometimes me and my mom and my dad do shows all together, so it kind of goes and fits and starts with the whole family, so maybe i 'll see him a lot over a space of a couple months where we 're working, and then not that often, but he's in New York and so am I, but we're both on the road. So part of the thing about everybody is just that we're all— you have to catch each other in the same city at the same time, which is a little hard. But my dad is very good at keeping in touch, so he likes to meet for dinner, and he calls. If I don't see him, we talk on the phone.
0: I don't want to spend that much time talking about your family because I want to talk about you and your music and your life, but I thought it would be fun to ask you for one-sentence descriptions of— your sort of immediate musical family? And we'll start with Anna and Kate McGarrigle, each individual.
2: Uh, (laughs) Well, yesterday was, or I think the day before yesterday was Kate McGarrigle's birthday. Um, She has passed away now 10 years ago. This is more than a sentence. Okay, a sentence. I didn't know her well, but if we'd had the chance to get to know each other, I think we would have liked each other.
0: And what about Anna?
2: Anna... I don't see her often, but when I do, she's mysterious
0: and lovely. Maggie Roach, the late, great, brilliant Maggie Roach. Oh, man. Um,
2: one of the most brilliant and loyal people that you could ever know also really loved cheese. <laughs> Terry Roach. Um she is absolutely fascinating to talk to on any topic, absolutely any topic, yes, and also just one of my all-time favorite people.
0: Loudon Wainwright III.
2: It's funny, the thing that comes into my head is that I think he's a great dad, which I don't think is um, something that he's known for. I don't think people think that about him. But I would say he's been a great dad to me. Sometimes that looks different than what you
0: think it might. Oh, Absolutely. Martha Wainwright.
2: When her light shines upon you, it's the best feeling that there is. Rufus Wainwright. We are very different in our sort of way that we are in the world, but he has this deep, sweet, sentimental thing about him that just keeps everybody very connected in the family.
0: And then finally, your mom, Susie Roach.
2: She almost always is exactly spot on with whatever she says or does. There's so many things to say about all of them, but yeah.
0: I I do have to say, and I ordinarily don't brag on, on the show, but I have the noted distinction of having seen every single person that I just mentioned in concert. Really?
2: That's Absolutely. so cool. It's like a collection of like cereal box toys. <laughs> <laughs> and you
0: have them all. <laughs> but I have never seen you perform all together, other than the Roaches. Right. It's, right. Everybody has been solo.
2: Yeah. Well, we have done that. Um, we went on a cruise all together and
0: performed on the cruise all together. That was intense. Um, and didn't you also do that in when you were in Alaska? Didn't you all travel together and then yeah. take the audience on buses and trains with you? We did in Alaska. Yes, we did. <laughs> How
2: did that work? Did you just pe- pick people up along the way? It was. It's this thing called Roots on the Rails. Um, these people run. Lovely people run, run these things where musicians come and then the audience come, and it's kind of an all-expense-paid trip. And oftentimes they'll be on trains for a lot of the time and even sleeper trains. Like one of the ones that I did, we slept on the train. The one in Alaska, we didn't sleep on the train, and it involved some buses as well and some boats. So the audience came with us. There were maybe like 45 audience members, and then me and my mom and my dad and my brother and my Aunt Sloan. Martha couldn't come because her son was starting kindergarten. And I, was your grandmother selling CDs? She wasn't with us on that, but she used to sell the CDs when I was a kid with the roaches. But um, it was fun. We saw whales. I mean, I, I basically was like, if I see a whale, it was worth it. And
0: I did. I How saw old were you at that time? I, it was just a couple of years ago. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> so I read that when you were four or five years old, that was when you first graced a stage. I was at the great Bottom Line nightclub in New York City where Rufus and Martha Wainwright were performing. Talk about what happened. They they got me up on stage. I think it might have been a Christmas show
2: or something, a Roach's Christmas show, maybe. And I got up and I was supposed to sing and I just burst into tears and my dad had to come and get me off the stage. I remember that he came up to the edge of the stage and lifted me off the stage and my mom thinks that probably the whole audience thought that it was child abuse <laughs> because they were like, "Get up on the stage!" and then. But I think I thought I wanted to do it, and then I got out there, and I was like, "Oh, geez."
0: And were you just shy? Were I think you I was just shy. I
2: was very shy as a kid. I did not, um, not not with people closest to me, but but in school, I didn't talk and stuff really at all until about second grade. I had a teacher who got me to talk, and then I just
0: now now I talk incessantly. I understand you first tried to play the guitar when you were about seven. Were you trying to teach yourself? Who was teaching you?
2: My mom and my aunt Terry. Um, my aunt Terry was going to teach me, and they got a left-handed guitar because I'm left-handed, and I think she tried to teach me "Old MacDonald" on on the guitar, and I just just wasn't feeling it, and we all gave up. And then it wasn't until I was in high school that I started to play the guitar, and I play the guitar right-handed. I don't know if that was part of it, like maybe, maybe I'm not that left-handed or something. And the the le- but also seven is young for the guitar. 'Cause it hurts
0: your yeah. fingers. <laughs> I'm left handed also and I can play five chords on a guitar, but I play with a right handed guitar as yeah. well. And I've tried to switch thinking that I'd be able to play better that way, but I can't.
2: Yeah, me too. Same. And also, by the way, five chords is all you need.
0: <laughs> Neil Young did it in three. Yeah. You, but yeah, I just you're don't ready. <laughs> have, I don't have the gene. It's my biggest regret in my life that I don't have that gene. Really? Yeah. I just, you know, I and one of the things that I really wanted to ask you, and I ask every musician that comes on the show this question, how do you write a song?
2: I often feel in a panic like I'll never write a song again. So I'm a little bit in that phase right now. And I also often have sort of a blackout about what happens when I, when I write. But that aside, I usually sit with the guitar and I'll either get something on the guitar that I like or or some kind of melody that goes with it. And uh, sometimes I'll get stand-in words that I just put in to like get the shape of the melody, and then I'll replace them later. A thing that happens to me a lot is I'll get a verse and a chorus, and then I'll be like, well, I said that. And then I'll be like, oh, jeez, I have to finish this somehow. And I it's hard to get past that initial idea for me. But oftentimes you go into a zone and I'm not even sure what happens. But, man, I'm so grateful every time it happens. Um, And it's especially great when you don't turn on the song that you just wrote. That's a thing that happens a lot. When you hate it. Yeah, like as soon as you do it. My mom says that it's like a cat who coughs up a hairball and then jumps back and looks at it like who did that <laughs> you know and I, I think that's pretty good description yeah um, it's hard to not kind of turn on your work I think either partway through or afterwards I mean after I've made a record I usually do not want to hear it ever again um, it's that same feeling of somehow it, it just presses your buttons in a way that other people's stuff doesn't
0: do you ever, once a song is finished, ever go back and rewrite lyrics or change the chorus or do anything to augment it in some way?
2: I haven't ever done that. There's a song um, on my new record that I really like still, <laughs> miraculously, but there is a lyric in it that I wish I had changed. And I haven't changed it yet, but I would say I, I feel regret about about it. Um, so I've thought. Well, I mean, maybe you you could change it, you know, just because it's not the official recording. I could change it and show. So I'm thinking about changing it because every time I get to that part, I'm like, ugh, I wish I hadn't written that.
0: Well, Joni Mitchell and Stevie Nicks have changed lyrics. Mm-hmm. I've heard Stevie Nicks change the lyrics to "Landslide," which is sort of shocking, and then Joni Mitchell has changed lyrics to Hegira with whoever is playing saxophone with her. Yeah. You know, she'll say Michael Brecker or whoever, you know, might be yeah. playing. She started it, I think, with Michael Brecker.
2: Yeah, I was listening to a, a recording of Joan Baez doing Diamonds and Rust recently, and I was trying to play for someone this thing that I'd heard her do in a show, and then I discovered that it wasn't in the original, that she had changed something, and she was doing it in performances, but not... um.
0: What are the lyrics that she changed? The
2: lyrics that she changed are, If you're offering diamonds and rust...
0: I've already paid. I've already
2: paid is the original one. But when I saw her do it more recently, she said, If you're offering diamonds and rust, I'll take the diamonds, which I thought was... (laughs)
0: really good. (laughs) Very, very good.
2: So that's a change I could
0: totally get behind. (laughs) Well, one of the things that I heard Joni Mitchell say in one of her live recordings was that when you're standing in front of an audience and they ask you to play a song, she thought it was sort of interesting that nobody ever asks a painter to repaint a painting. But yet we're always asking performers to redo these songs that are such a part of our lives. Yeah. And she jokes nobody ever asked Van Gogh to paint a sunflower again. You know? That's true. That's true. So I know your your family also tried to get you to take piano lessons and you weren't interested either, but there's a lot of piano on your records and I've seen you play piano. So when did that take hold? Yeah, I don't really play the piano
2: enough to play um, anything. I, d- I wish that I had stuck with lessons. I know how many times do you hear. I remember as a child all the adults saying that they wish they had stayed with piano lessons, and I now am an adult who wishes that. Um, I quit because I thought that my teacher didn't smell good.
0: It's a good I, reason. I it's actually, a really good reason. I, thought I stopped he smelled physical bad. therapy on my thumb because of that, <laughs> really? and I really regret it. <laughs> yes.
2: <laughs> I, I, I didn't just think he didn't smell good. I thought that he smelled bad, and I refused to keep doing it, and, you know, that wasn't the best decision I ever made. <laughs> I wish I had because I love the piano, and on my last... Record My most recent record, there's a lot of piano, and mostly the producer, my friend Jordan Hamlin, she played most of it, and I adore the piano on recording. So I wish that I had stuck with it more, and I've thought about taking lessons now as an adult, and it's on a list of things I think of doing and
0: don't, but maybe I will someday. You wrote your first songs in high school, um, but you get, then gave up music and stated that the last thing you wanted to do was get up on stage and perform. Was that because of your shyness or because of feeling sort of your family vibe?
2: Yeah, I think in high school, I did write my first songs. My my first song that I wrote was about babysitting. Um, it was about my this kid that I babysat for all through high school, and then he and his family moved away, and I went to college. And... It was about the heartbreak of that. Um, But in high school, I got really interested in teaching, and I volunteered a lot in the lower school classrooms at my high school, and I sort of was moving in that direction. And I think I'd been living in the soup of the music thing for so long that I walked— towards college, kind of dropping all that behind me. Um, And when I was in college, I did a lot of booking, and, like, my brother came to play, and other people I was fans of came to play, and other family members came to play at college, and I booked them, but I wasn't really interested in performing. Um, And then I think it kind of, towards the end of college, I started to notice the absence of that.
0: You attended Oberlin College in Ohio and graduated with a degree in creative writing, and then went on to get a master's degree in education from the Bank Street College of Education in Manhattan. What made you decide you wanted to become a teacher?
2: I always loved uh, working with kids. I always, I really just always wanted to do that, and
0: to this day, I'm torn about. Not doing it. There was this wistful look in your eyes as you said this. Um, I I have read that you think there are some similarities in terms of engagement Mm -hmm. with an audience and with students. But now, especially being on the road as much as you are on your own, it must be hard to not have that collective energy around.
2: Yeah, definitely. It's one of the amazing things about being a, a teacher is just the day in and day outness of it and how the sheer number of hours that you spend with these people and even though you're not with their parents it's a very intimate thing dealing with people's families and children and and struggles in school and and you're a really big present part of people's everyday lives and now I'm not like that at all I'm I'm literally passing through town and that is what my life is. So it's really different in that way.
0: You taught both in Durham, North Carolina, and New York City. How different were those experiences?
2: Well, in Durham, I didn't have my degree yet, and I was teaching mostly preschoolers, so they were really little. And preschool and three-year-olds, most of them are three, I feel like three-year-olds are really interesting because they kind they sort of get what's going on, and then they also have this, like, total like belief that like anything could be happening like they've been being told all these weird things like you grow inside of another human being in some cases santa claus comes down the chimney like they're all these things they're like oh okay sure you know like that they're, they're, they're yeah, just they like, believe everything yeah and they're they've got it kind of figured out but then it's also kind of confusing um so that was really fun then in In New York, I taught second grade and then third grade, um, which is a whole other thing. I love second and third grade. I think it's a very industrious age, like people want to be doing stuff and making books and creating their own thing. And one of the things I love the most about that time period was I got really into telling stories with them. Um, We set out trying to write stories, but a lot of... Some kids are really limited by the uh, physical demands of actually writing. So we started doing storytelling instead, where they would tell stories from their own lives in front of the class. And that was a hoot and so great. And also taking away the writing, the actual physical writing of it, meant that they could like get the story structure thing sorted out without that, in case that was like a stumbling block for them. So I loved that. I miss that.
0: Were you bringing music into the classroom as well?
2: Not really. I I was pretty shy. I was really shy as a teacher. I think I would be a better teacher now because I think after all these years of doing shows, I'm less shy. Um, The only songs I taught them were the songs that I was taught. In elementary school. So I taught them the 50 Nifty United States song where you list all the states.
0: in Alabama, Alaska, Arizona, Arkansas, California, California, Colorado, Colorado, Connecticut. Ah.
2: (laughs) And I remember on the first day when my teacher taught us that, I just thought, I'll never be able to learn that. And then you do. And I remember on the first day in the second grade class, me singing it for them and them being like, well, we can't do that. But they totally—they all know it. So I and they they probably still do. They probably still do. (laughs) And there was a song about parallelograms that I learned in elementary school that I taught them. Those are the only songs that I taught them.
0: What made you decide to give up teaching and join what the Wainwright family calls the family business? Um,
2: I in two thousand five, my brother, uh, who you might think isn't paying attention to anyone else. he that's not true, though, about him. Uh, he kind of has a, a, a covert eye on everybody in a way you might not expect. And he was like, I think you should come out on the road with me this summer. And um, I did. I went on his tour bus and I sang back up with him. I never spoke a word on stage. I was painfully shy during all of that. But it was really fun. I mean, touring on a tour bus is really fun. and And living in his life for a minute is really fun. So... When I went back to teaching after that summer, it had kind of gotten under my skin a little bit, like, but I really like that world and I miss that world. And I think I, after another year of teaching, decided that if I was going to give it a shot, I better just do it and thinking like, well, maybe I'll come back to teaching. And so then um, after that next year, I left
0: there are some wonderful versions of you and your brother singing Hallelujah on YouTube, which are just gorgeous. Absolutely. Yeah, that's gorgeous. what we sang.
2: That's the first one that we ever did together. Yeah.
0: Your first gig, your first solo gig, was opening for your father in 2005 at the Rockwood Music Hall in New York. What was that like? It was really
2: bad. My first show was so bad. Like, I, I was so bad. Um, I was super uncomfortable on stage not particularly capable and not doing myself any favors. And the second show was at the living room, which also is closed, I think. Um, And that one was much better because in that time, I realized that the best strategy was just to be myself. That's a very
0: fast (laughs) learning curve.
2: Well, I think it was such a debacle trying to like,
0: like, did you cry on stage? Or? No,
2: no, no. Your dad didn't have to not come that get time. you. you know? <laughs> yeah, but um, I was crying on the inside, and I was behaving like a weirdo. Like I was. I think I, I had watched so many performances that I think maybe I thought something else was happening, but really, people are best when they're channeling their their real self. And um, once I figured that out, it got a lot better. That's not to say that the living the second show was like fantastic
0: but it it was less it felt better when did you start to feel comfortable fully comfortable and fully yourself on stage
2: probably within the the first year of doing shows I mean there's nothing like just doing 30 shows in a row to kind of like get your act together literally. literally yeah you know and nothing else can do that except for doing the shows you
0: know you had to really want to do it, though, if that first experience was, as you put it, terrifying and also terrible.
2: Yeah, I think I wanted to live the shape of the lives of the people who I grew up around. I don't know if that was the best decision, but Why? that's what I wanted. Why? Well, I knew full well going into this that this was not a, in most cases, not lucrative and in most cases, not super stable I knew all of that. I have no excuse for <laughs> I didn't go into it blind at all, but I definitely have come up against the reality of that and feeling like, wow, what was I thinking, you know? At the same time, uh, my whole life is built around this now and amazing things. I've gotten to see amazing things that I never would have seen, but at the same time, I think I think one one thing about it is when I started out, all of my peers were kind of starting out, and they were doing whatever job—usually not the job they really wanted—but maybe working towards the job they really wanted. And I left teaching and went out to do this, and everybody was sort of like, "Wow, that's cool!" And then ten years later, everybody's life is like really developed into a much more kind of stable. Uh, you know, they they've ended up in a certain spot. Uh, and I'm still doing the same thing, and it's a lot less
0: cool-looking, you know? But you're making music. It's true. You're living a completely creative life. It's true. Your first album was the eponymously titled Lucy and was released in 2010, and I understand you and your mom were touring at that point to raise money to make the album. Did you self-produce the entire thing?
2: Um, my stepdad, Stuart Lerman, he produced that first record, and... Uh, my first couple of recordings, I made two EPs and then that record. And those recordings were made really in the seat of the family. So Stuart produced them. I worked with him a lot one-on-one. The Roaches sang on that first record. I think my dad also sang on that first record. So it was very much totally insulated in the world of the family, um, which the two records after that have been really
0: different in that way. Would you do a song from that album for sure. us Sure. And, sure. and if you can also tell us a little bit about the song you're going to sing. Your songs are stories. Okay. This song is called um,
2: Open Season. I wrote it after I took the F train out to Coney Island one day in the winter. And they happened to be taking down Luna Park, the old amusement park there without any fanfare whatsoever. I just showed up and they were removing this giant rocket ship that was up. That's sort of poetic. I know, On I, think, to, well, yeah. I was like, better get home and write a song. This song is a song that a lot of people request. It's also a song that Whenever I'm in a relationship, people are like, I really like that song, but it's about so-and-so, like the person before or whatever. And I'm always like, no, it isn't. It was, so it's, that keeps getting said to me. I don't, I don't know what to make of that. But anyway. Good? Okay. Open season on a
1: broken heart. This is the year they take the summer apart. There is a magic to the carnival arts And I can hear the sound Is it the wind through the wonder wheel? Is it the science of the way we feel? Is it the quiet of that old appeal? Will you be mine again? My love, my love Are you on a winter beach tonight Waiting on a last chance rocket ride And reach your hand out for an iron ring You'll get another chance So that's the thing We will be back again Cause summer comes around on any clock I'll wash with bathing suits and polka dots We'll ride the subway To their final stops To see the
0: sea again Thank you. That was beautiful. Thanks. Lucy, you've been described as a master of musical melancholy. Would you say that that is accurate?
2: Well, I mean, that's a nice compliment because I, I really like sad music a lot. Um, and I I don't think I'll ever have, have the feeling towards my songs that I have towards songs that I love. Most of the songs I love are really sad. And uh, What the, are some uh, of your favorites? Oh, man. Well, there's a song called Holy by Chris Perica that I love so much that's so sad I just listened to it today. I can't listen to it without crying, and I really love it. Someone like Patty Griffin has a lot of really sad songs. you opened for
0: her. What was that like for you? It
2: was great. I'm a big fan, and um, I don't know her well, and I did a few shows with her last year. It was great. Her audience is great, and I got to watch her show every night, and she's so amazing and wonderful, so that was great. I also love songs that maybe don't sound that sad but strike me as sad, like the Paul Simon um, Crazy Love on the album Graceland. It's almost upbeat. But it breaks my heart, that song. And I really love to um, take upbeat-sounding songs and turn them into what someone coined sad
0: snoozers. Oh, I like (laughs) Master of Musical (laughs) Melancholy better. I saw that. I wasn't even going to ask you about that. I don't think that there's a better example of you doing that than the song on your album that you uh, released in 2013. Uh, The album is titled There's a Last Time for Everything, which features your really unusual and brilliant cover of the Swedish pop star Robin's Call Your Girlfriend. The original is a club beat heavy pop dance anthem. And the entire video of her doing it is of her dancing in a gymnasium. Um, it's such but, a great video. It a <laughs> it's great such video. a great video. <laughs> but you perform it with a few chords on an acoustic guitar and a small choir. Um, was wondering if you would do that for us as well. But also tell us about why you decided to do that song. What is it about that song? When I was making that
2: record, uh, Jordan, the producer, and I took a drive to see Nico Case in Atlanta. We drove from Nashville to Atlanta, kind of in the middle of making the record. And we played that song, and we both loved that song. And about halfway through the song, we sort of both looked at each other and thought, like, could we possibly... And we did, and I'm so glad we did. I love that song because it's so unusual. Like, what she's saying, the way that she's saying it, is not something that I'd heard quite that way before.
0: I just I heard it described, or I read it described as a reverse Jolene, right? the song by Dolly Parton, <laughs> which
2: I think, yeah, that's actually true. Yeah, <laughs> totally. That's true, yeah. I just love it. And then when we tried to do it slowed down, which is my mode that I want to take every song into, um kind of really worked. In fact, a lot of people think it's my song, and then when I tell them that it's a dance song, they're just totally shocked, because I think when you hear it slowed down, it doesn't seem like it would be a dance song at all. (laughs) In fact, the other day, somebody came up to me at the CD table and said... Oh my god the other day I was in a store and and suddenly this dance remix version of your song Call Your Girlfriend <laughs> came on the radio and I was like oh my god she's gotten so big that they're remixing her songs as dance song and I was like not to worry I haven't gotten so big as that <laughs> that's Yet. the original sort of like Tom's diner <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> so I love that song and uh, I'll definitely do it for you if you want Yes
0: please mm-hmm.
1: Call your girlfriend It's time you had the talk Give your reasons Say it's not Get upset, second guessing everything you said and done. And then when she gets upset, tell her I hey, never meant to hurt no one. Time you
0: had the talk. Thank you, thank you for that, Lucy. What made you decide to record this album in Nashville? The
2: last two I did in Nashville. Um, the first one was in Jordan Brokhamlin's basement. Uh, we did that in about a week and then we decided to make another record together and at this point Jordan is working out of a studio called Moxie that is a really beautiful amazing place. We took a lot longer to make this record. It, the, the one before was very quick. This one we made over in chunks over like a year and a half or so.
0: Yeah it was a great experience. Does location impact your songwriting?
2: Yes, there's a lot of place in a lot of my songs, probably because I spend a lot of time driving around. So there's a lot of sort of like wherever I am seeps into the songs. Most of these songs I wrote in New York. Some of them I finished in Nashville. But the beauty of the location of the place where I made the record did play into the recording because, for example, when I did my vocals, she has this recording room that faces the woods with these big windows. And so you'd do a take in the morning and it's beautiful. I do a take at sunset, you know, it, and it just was very pleasurable to sing. And I, I think I sang in a slightly different way. You know how, when you personally make a, make a shift, it feels big to you. Probably people who
0: heard the record maybe didn't notice that. But for me, there were a lot of things about this
2: record that were like a shift for me.
0: Your family has famously written about each other. It started with your father. One of his songs, written shortly after Rufus was born, is titled Rufus is a Tit Man. Mm-hmm. He also wrote about you several times. One song he wrote with your aunt Terry after you were born is titled Screaming Issue, which is about your plaintive, constant crying. He also wrote, I'd Rather Be Lonely, about your sister Martha, who countered with her own song to him, Bloody Motherfucking Asshole, which I've actually seen her perform live, and it is just a tour de force. Rufus has written Lucy's Blue for you. Have you written any songs about any members of your family?
2: I have. um, Largely, I've stayed out of any controversy amongst (laughs) the family, in part because my writing can be a bit vague sometimes, so maybe they— they haven't noticed. This record has a song that is about my family on it as a whole. Um
0: and you're talking about Little Beasts' your yeah, new album? Yes, yeah.
2: and the song is called The City and I wrote it um on a night where the whole family was together in New York. It was I, I think it might have been my dad's a record release of his um, I was on tour with the Indigo Girls, and I had a night off, and I had considered flying home to be in this show that my brother and my sister and my other sister, who isn't a performer, was going to be in, and my mom and my aunt and everybody was going to be in it. Um, And I decided not to go, and uh, it was a hard decision. And so I had a night off in Petoskey, Michigan on the Indigo Girls tour, and I sat in the hotel and I wrote The City, and that is about the family business. I would
0: say. It's interesting because the song is about the pressure and uncertainty of life as a touring musician. And after I listened to it, I actually went to your website to see your tour dates, and it seems as if you're on the road all the time. It seems as if you did 200-plus shows last year.
2: Yeah, I'm away a lot. I'm trying to
0: shift that a little bit just for sanities yes mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> um, so it's interesting because it was vague enough where I really thought it was about your life and not the life of your family
2: yeah yeah it's 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 sort of about the the circus of the whole situation and and everybody's writing about each other and and how um, people's lives and relationships and pain seep into the work that they do and stuff so
0: does it ever bother you that there's so much about your childhood and upbringing in a lot of the songs of your family?
2: No. Honestly, I I it's hard for me to imagine what my concept of my close family members would be if you subtracted the songs because I listen to all those people's records and usually you don't have that kind of a window into people's inner life or work in that particular way. And so it's hard for me to say, like, imagine my dad without knowing his work because he's talked so much about himself and his work. And so it's kind of valuable information to have.
0: (laughs) Yeah, I think the only other thing that comes close is Fleetwood Mac's rumors, which everybody loved to sort of read into. Was this about Mick? Was this about Lindsay? Was this about Christine? Was it about Stevie and Mick or Stevie and Lindsay? And, totally. But yet, you're, that's your life all the time. That was one album in the 70s. right?
2: <laughs> well, we all have, and everyone has their own, and this is true about music with everyone, um, not just the family, but everyone has their own relationship to these songs. You like take them into a private space and you experience them. So I recently was in L.A. singing some backup for a show that Rufus was recording for Audible for a project he's doing with them. And, and we did one of my dad's songs, Your Mother and I, which he wrote about me when or addressed to me when my parents were splitting up and amongst the siblings we haven't probably discussed a lot of everyone's feelings about the songs but he chose the songs and he was going to sing that song and during rehearsal he started to sing it and he and he just burst into tears we had to stop and it was interesting because we just all are having our own emotional reaction to everyone's work And it's private also, you know, so you might not know. Like, I wouldn't have thought that would happen. But it's also a great thing to be able to appreciate each other's work. I think we're different enough that we don't get in each other's way, but we can still collaborate, which is a nice uh, balance, I think.
0: Your third album, your most recent album, Mm -hmm. is titled Little Beasts. It was released last October. I think it is maybe your saddest, but definitely your most extraordinary album yet. Um, I think we really see your evolution as a singer and a songwriter and a performer, and the confidence in your lyrics is just beautiful. The song Quit With Me is a duet with Matthew Perryman Jones. It's about two people who love each other very much but must break up. The tune Fifth of July looks back at how you felt during and after the 2016 presidential election, the album is really quite extraordinary, and I believe it shows your brilliance in a way that is really singular. Thank in you. among the Wainwright roaches, congratulations on Thank this you release. Very much. What made you decide to release this album on your own?
2: Um, I have never worked with a record company. Uh, I've always just called up the printing plant in New Jersey and had the records pressed and sold them. Um, That has been my business model. I sort of live in this funny little section of the music business that's still alive where people buy records. Uh, I think they buy them mostly so that you'll sign them and you can talk while you sign them. I don't know how many people put them into a CD player, Um, but owning my own music has been the key. To staying afloat, for me.
0: I uh, was wondering if you could do one last song for us sure. before you leave. My favorite song on the album is titled "Heroin," which isn't exactly about what it sounds like. It's a crafty little song. Can you tell us about it and then and then play it for us?
2: Sure. I think the whole re- this whole record is probably the most personal record that I've made, and part of that is that I I just decided to lyrically I wasn't as constrained as I normally am. I let myself say some things that I wouldn't normally or I didn't kind of edit things out that I might have shied away from before.
0: Any, any examples of um, what you're talking about?
2: Um, yeah, I mean, I think the song Heroin is probably one of my most personal songs. It's completely autobiographical and it's painful and I didn't stop that from... Existing Again, it may not show up that way to others, but to me it felt like I was really, you know, it was a vulnerable thing for me. The whole record was kind of like that, but definitely that song. And um, I love it when I hear that somebody connected to that song because, um, I mean, I love it when I hear that anybody's connected to any of the songs. It seems like a miracle and it's such a great thing. Uh, But that song meant a lot to me. And so you hope when you put them out in the world someone will hear that or it will mean something to someone. So, um,
0: yeah. Yeah, it very well may be my favorite of your songs. So there so you great. have that.
2: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Let me see. But, yeah, this song has some place in it. This has um, some driving in it, some place in it. Um, have you ever driven on the Million
0: Dollar Highway in Colorado? Yes. It's so scary. It is really scary. <laughs> I've driven cross country and there were moments on that road where I actually I was driving with someone else and we were taking turns. So when one of us wasn't driving, we'd be sleeping and there was a moment where I was like, "Okay, you got to wake up because I can't do this by myself."
2: Yeah, it's quite harrowing. Yeah. And I like driving, but it was just it was a little bit too scary, which I guess is what the song is about. <laughs>
1: Sometimes I see your favorite shot It's one you wanted but you never got It was of me But not me I've been busy counting days The seasons stack up but the well remains And that's about you survivable or advisable it's the milk God, how I loved you, and how I still do. Mm-hmm.
2: I, I didn't um, say this, but actually so I've gotten some letters from people who are really concerned that I, I have a heroin. Addiction thing, which is actually not. <laughs> I, I feel. I feel like if you really listen to the song, it doesn't seem like that. But
0: people are worried. Well, I mean, it is. It does say the word heroin in it. It's true. I'm sure Lord got the same thing, even yeah. though she was not talking about it at all. Yeah, totally. Um, and then those that did, didn't. <laughs> yeah, right. <exactly. laughs> I, I don't think that a lot of people know that um, the needle and the damage done is a song about heroin and Neil Young's struggle with it.
2: Yeah, probably not.
0: Um, but have it yeah,
2: I guess that's the mystery of understanding things. but i was
0: i I mean I was concerned enough to go and look at the lyrics, yeah, yeah, not not because I was worried, but just because I wanted to know the history of the song, sure, and, and really sure. understand what you were talking about yeah about. my
2: my friend said to me that sentence, she said it's like saying happy birthday, heroine, like if you like getting uh you know going back into something you should stay away from, so mm. she said that, and then I was like. You're right.
0: <laughs> cool. So
2: I have a lot of problems, but that's not what happens to be not one of them.
0: Lucy Wainwright Roach, thank you for making such beautiful work and sharing it with the world. Thank you so much. You can find out more about Lucy's music and concerts on her website, com. It is now the 15th anniversary of Design Matters, and I'd like to thank you for listening all these years. And remember, we can talk about making a difference, we can make a difference, or we can do both. I'm Debbie Millman, and I look forward to talking with you again soon.
3: If you love this podcast, please consider contributing to our brand new Patreon community. Members get early access to the podcast, transcripts of every interview, invitations to live shows, Q&A sessions with guests, and a brand new annual magazine. You can learn more about this at patreon.com forward slash Debbie Millman. If you subscribe to this podcast through Apple Podcasts, please write a review or link to the podcast on social media. Design Matters is produced by Curtis Fox Productions. The show is recorded at the School of Visual Arts, Master's in Branding Program in New York City, the first and longest running branding program in the world. The editor-in-chief of Design Matters Media is Zachary Pettit, and the art director is Emily Wyland.